Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler om verdenssituationen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Glenn Larry har været en del af den amerikanske debat om ulighed og race i et halvt århundrede. Han var den første sorte professor i økonomi på Harvard, da han blev ansat der i starten af 80'erne. Han har skrevet nogle af de mest afgørende og skældsættende analyser af, hvad for eksempel affirmative action har betydet, hvordan forholdet er mellem økonomisk ulighed og markedsøkonomi, og så forholdene for de sorte i USA. Han har været en del af hele kampen og den offentlige debat som en intellektuel stjerne og som beundret økonom i mange årtier. Good afternoon to our viewers here in Denmark and good afternoon to you Glenn Larry in America. Thank you so very very much for taking your time and being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brun. Thank you for asking. I dag har han en podcast som jeg virkelig kan anbefale, som hedder The Glenn Show, der også findes som et TV-show på Blogging Heads TV, og jeg har fulgt ham i lang tid og har meget meget stor fornøjelse af at han fører så meget viden ind i hele racismediskussionen i USA, at han faktisk står på et fundament af kendskab til strukturer, politikker og økonomi, uddannelsessystem. Så det er en substantiel debat om racisme, som Glenn Larry fører. And I've been listening to you dissecting the debate about race in America and the public discourse. And I just want to thank you first, because it's been so enlightening to me. Det er også en kontroversiel debat om racisme, som den Larry fører, for hans pointe er, at det handler ikke om at ændre amerikanernes holdninger. Det vigtigste er ikke at have en national diskussion om racisme, og så skal dem, der er racister, opvise om, at de skal ikke være racister alligevel. Det vil ikke ændre forholdene for de sorte substantielt i USA, siger Glenn Larry. Det er noget helt, helt andet, der skal til. Og jeg er meget, meget glad for, at han sagde ja til, at jeg kunne tale med ham i 45 minutter og få ham til at forklare det helt, helt andet, der skal til. God fornøjelse. You've been part of the public discourse and, and the public debate in America for almost half a century by now. And now you have uh, this Blogging Heads TV show. It's out as a podcast as well. And when we follow America from abroad, we see all these different podcasts where you have people debating a lot and talking about the other podcast and the other and the other media. How has the public discourse evolved in America over the last decade? What do you think of the the public conversation that you have now? Oh, I think in general terms, it's very exciting uh, because, as you say, there are many sources. Uh, the the internet lowers the barrier to entry so that a person can broadcast their ideas to the world with very little cost. So there's a lot of uh, of, of there's a lot that's going on now. Not all content is of the same quality, so there's a lot of noise, and it it really pays to be discriminating as one uh, accesses all of this media. Uh, I sometimes worry that uh, the conversation about the issues that I care most about here in the United States is not as uh, nuanced and careful as it could be, and is dominated by uh, sloganeering. Uh, people saying what they think others want to hear them say, saying the things that are correct to say, and that some of the hardest questions that we face are so difficult to engage honestly that that the conversation uh, may fail. That's one of the things that um, I, with my colleague John McWhorter uh, at The Glenn Show, uh, <laughs> that we're trying to to change. We're trying to elevate the conversation. We're trying to challenge 
of conventional wisdom. But on the whole, I'd, I'd say newspapers are down. Print media are, are having a hard time. Uh, but the general quality of uh, public discussion, it's vital. Uh, there are many voices uh, and uh, there, there's, uh, I think, much to be uh, optimistic about in terms of public deliberation in the United States. We get a lot of it here as well, and, and it seems enlightening to us. Sometimes I wonder whether you just have small enclaves debating with people that they never really, really meet, whether you have like very qualified monologues with two or three people and, and, and they don't engage with each other, with those that hold different views. But, but I, I don't know. I think there is, there is that. There, there is because you can select where you go, you know, what sites you listen to. And because the, um, the, the communities that form around these different uh, outlets can be like-minded, uh, there, there is a tendency for there to be isolated uh, communities who talk to each other but don't talk across the line. But anybody can dial in. Any, anybody can join uh, the conversation. So um, I don't think there's any way to avoid uh, with social media some of this hurting. Uh, I'm going to call it hurting behavior where they all get together around this, a, a common set of ideas. Uh, but but I think the freedom of expression is so great now that if you really want to get an open exposure to many views, it's easy to do that. But the individual has to be intellectually curious. If they go only seeking to be reaffirmed, well, they're not going to learn anything. But it's possible to learn something. That That's what I would say. And how do you see the debate about race now in America? Because... When we hear it again from, from abroad, it seems that these four years of Trump were really, they were shocking to us uh, because he's, his views are not representing Europe. It's not that we're better than you are. We just have a different, we have our own demons as well. Uh, but it's, we were, when Obama was elected, we were saying, well, racism is over in America. The Civil War ended that night. Then came Trump. And now you have a President Biden claiming that he will dismantle white supremacy in America. Where, where, where do you see the, the discourse on race in America at the moment? I'm troubled by the discourse, but not because uh, we had a president who was a racist. Frankly, I'm given to saying uh, that, first of all, I don't think that's a particularly interesting question. Was Trump a racist? I think the partisan uh, struggle of American politics often had Trump being falsely accused of being a racist. Uh, I thought the character argument against Trump, he's a bad man, he hates Mexicans, was really a ploy. It was a political move by his political opponents who didn't want to argue directly with him. Let me give an example. I'll just give one. So inner city life in poor districts of American cities that are mostly Black, is bad. It's dangerous. There's a lot of crime. These are neglected areas. People suffer there. The schools don't work effectively and so on. Those areas of American cities have been represented mostly by Democratic politicians for half a century. For Trump to say, in effect, you people are not being well served by the people who say that they represent you is a fair part of what should be an argument. To respond to that by saying, you see how Trump talks about black people, he's a racist, is really an effort to avoid 
confronting that argument. Uh, so often when Trump was called a racist, my reaction would be, aha, the person is engaging in ad hominem invective in order to avoid answering a fair question. So I don't like the racism charge uh, as a uh, dodge, as a way of getting out of a political argument is what I'm saying. And I think sometimes it's used in that way. But we do have serious issues here in the United States uh, around race. They are not as serious as they were 25 years ago or 50 years, much has changed, much has changed. But uh, we, we do have issues, but I'm inclined to think that many of them, uh, poor housing, food insecurity, uh, lack of employment uh, opportunities, uh, uh, schools that are not functioning well, and so on, while they disproportionately affect the Black population, can only be solved through a politics that addresses itself to the class imperative of extending opportunity to all Americans, regardless of whether they're rich or poor. And if we did that, we would solve many of the racial problems, not all of them, but many of them. So I think it's important to emphasize that. It seems an interesting conflict in American politics at the moment that on the one hand you have some people saying, well, Biden owes his presidency to black voters, that, that the black electorate helped him gain the primaries and that he should give something back to them specifically and address policies for the black community uh, because he kind of owes it to them. Here in Denmark, we're a little skeptical of, of that because it sounds a little clientelism. But on the other hand, we have the history of worker parties. And when worker parties, they've, they've voted someone in power, you expect them to do something good for the workers. And I, and I heard a very interesting conversation with the Barack Obama and the guys at the Breakfast Club. And they were asking him, uh, what does America owe, owe, owe black people? And Obama said, well, the same as America owes everyone else justice for all. And they say, well, doesn't America owe something in particular to black people? Shouldn't they address policies directly at black people? And it was very difficult for Obama, actually, because I think he was convinced that some of his more universal policies were also helping black people. So where do you stand on this question? I'm with Obama, although it becomes increasingly less popular to take that stance, especially in the era of Black Lives Matter. Um, I'm with Obama for two reasons. One of them is moral and the other is political. I think Obama was mainly motivated by the political, but let me state both reasons. Uh, the moral reason is that um, I find it very hard to say to a poor white person, because you're white, you have to wait for the attention of the government to your problems. I, I don't think that because my ancestors were slaves, that I have a privileged position in the waiting line for the attention of my government. So if we really believe in equality of, uh, of the worth of every human being, regardless of race, how can we prioritize distributing the COVID-19 vaccine, attending to the problem of uh, 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 educational institutions that won't, don't work well, uh, disciplining police officers to behave uh, properly and treat their citizens with respect? How can we prioritize Blacks 
ahead of other Americans if we actually believe that all of us are created in, if you will, God's image as equal persons. So that's my moral reason for being skeptical. But my political reason is that I think Obama was right to read the climate of the country in the long run as one that would be not as sympathetic to the special pleading of Black people as it would be to a universal claim we should be a country where everyone has a decent life for all people. We can put 50% of the population behind that claim, and it may be harder to get 50% of the population to agree that uh, Blacks uh, deserve special treatment. So Obama needs to cobble together a coalition. He, after all, he says, as he rolls to the presidency, he says, it's not a white America or a black America, it's the United States of America. Says Obama, whose father is from Kenya and whose mother is from Kansas, it's in my very DNA, says <laughs> Obama. That's a quote. It's in my very DNA. He's a man of both races who would lead a multiracial country. So it is, I think, quite natural politically for him to have taken, taken that stand. He had to worry, Obama did, about seeming to be putting special privilege for Blacks, which would have made him less effective uh, as a leader of the country as a whole. Where, where do you see Biden on this? Because Biden wouldn't have that, he wouldn't be talking from that position that, that people would say, well, he's just taking care of, of, uh, of his, his own. He's another character in American politics with another history of being a part of political life for 50 years and and saying himself that he was inspired by the civil rights movement. So, so where, 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 where do you see him moving politically as a president towards the well, back? I don't know. As you pointed out earlier, he does have a debt. Joseph Biden would not have gotten the nomination <laughs> of his party, but for the solid support in South Carolina that he received from the black electorate there in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party of South Carolina is very black. The state is conservative and mostly Republican, but the Democrats in the state are mostly black. So they they rescued him uh, from ig the ignominious uh, defeat that he otherwise might have suffered. And although I'm not an expert on election results, my sense is that black support for Joseph Biden was very strong and helped him to win uh, what might otherwise uh, have been losses in uh, states like Wisconsin and Georgia. Uh, and Pennsylvania, um, and so on. So uh, he's he's indebted. But I think the thing we have to remember is that Joseph Biden, the man, is one thing. And Joseph Biden, the politician, is another. And the politician uh, has uh, obligations to his party and to the professional bureaucrats who will uh, be the workers inside of the government agencies that will implement uh, his policy. And those people have a particular ideological disposition. They are very much of a left-oriented, uh, we, we call it woke. Yes. We call it woke over here in America. Yeah. They're, they're woke. They're on, they're for uh, slavery reparations for Black people. They're for affirmative action. They're for uh, racial uh, head counting in terms of uh, who do you get, who gets the jobs and whatnot. And uh, that, that, complex of interest, uh, it has a life of its own. People have career concerns. Uh, people are, are jockeying for power and control. 
Uh, and whether or not that represents the interests of African-Americans, and I want to give, thank you for giving me the time, just one example, schools. For poor people who depend on public schools in many cities, they're getting a rotten deal. They're not getting as good as they should get and as they deserve. Often, the unions who represent the employees who teach in the schools have conflicts that go against the interests of the families and the students who depend upon the schools. If I say I want teachers to be accountable, so I am going to make their compensation contingent on how well they perform in the classroom, the union will object to that. If I say <laughs> I want families to have the freedom to take their children out of the public school and use resources to send them to a charter or a parochial school, many unions who represent teachers will disagree with that. Now, of course, teachers deserve to be represented in their interests. But what are the interests of the Black families who depend upon those schools? They do not necessarily coincide with the teachers union. And I can assure you that a Biden administration's Department of Education will side with the teachers union because that's the political bedrock of the overall party coalition. Uh, so I'm saying all of that to say that what Biden says in a speech is one thing. What actually happens from the government is another. And it won't simply be a repaying of Black people for their support. It'll be a complicated outcome that depends upon the influences of all kinds of parties who have agendas uh, that are sometimes at odds with the African-American uh, community's interests. You, you've been very sensitive of the dynamics of civil society. You've, been, you've even been credited by Robert Putnam for inventing the concept of social capital. And, and, and you've been, through your career, you've been... You've been very attentive to the limits of what economics can do and, and what policies what what policies can do. So I'm curious, what do you expect from an what do you think an American president could actually do that would improve lives of, of, of the blacks? And what are what are dynamics in civil society? What are deliberations that you ought to have within the different communities? What are What, what do you expect people to self-criticize and, and engage uh, lo locally? What could be done from a federal level? Well, uh, that's a big question. Uh, I've been saying of late, uh, and thank you for remembering that Robert Putnam <laughs> has credited me. That's, that's not a small thing. That's a big thing. Uh, and I am grateful to uh, Bob Putnam, who's generous in that regard. But it's true that in my 1976 PhD dissertation, At MIT, I coined the phrase social capital. That's a fact. Uh, <laughs> but Bob Putnam has made much more out of that than I ever did. But in any case, uh, uh, what, what can be done? I want to focus on development. Here's how I'm thinking about it. Black people have a history of exclusion and mistreatment in the society going back to the days of slavery. One consequence of that is that the development of our capacities to actually perform and meet the challenges of competition in the modern world, for many of us, has been suppressed. The development has been held back. Now, also, for those of us who were developed and effective and skilled, we were also not afforded equal opportunity. There was bias against us. There was discrimination. So you have these two things. You have discrimination, you have bias, and you have development. I want to say that now, in the 21st century, with the world growing smaller and smaller, with globalization, 
with uh, economic change, that the development priority is the fundamental prior priority. That's why you hear me talk so much about education. I think the focus on bias is to some degree an anachronism. It is for another time. It is very much the 20th century. Discrimination against Blacks, exclusion against Blacks, unfair treatment of Blacks, and refusal to acknowledge Black talent. Of course it exists, but it's not the main story anymore. The main story in my view is Blacks lagging behind because we have not had the opportunity or taken the initiative, yes, I would say that, to develop ourselves fully. And so promoting that development, I think, should be the, the fundamental impetus to uh, government's intervention to uh, assist African-Americans. So, so you're actually saying that this, this whole confronting racism and talking about racism is, is not necessarily helping people. This, we, we, we have this white supremacy, we have this racism, we must confront it, we must eradicate it. Uh, that, that to me seems like a very uh, genuine movement, people really fighting for freedom of, of others and they're seeing black people suffering and being on the, on, on the, on the wrong side of, 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 of inequalities. And, and for that, they're addressing racism. You're saying that is not the best strategy for really helping black people in America. Uh, yes, I must confess, that's what I'm saying. I don't take any joy in saying it. I'm saying that that is the easy way out, frankly, and it's not even a way out. Confronting racism, that is so easy to say. Uh, a movement against racism, anti-racism, that is so easy to get behind. Actually dealing with the developmental problems is harder. I want to give a concrete example. Crime and violence in American cities, there are roughly 15,000 homicides in a year in the United States, people killing other people. Half of them involve Blacks as perpetrator and victim. Half of them, when Blacks are 12% of the population. It's the leading cause of death among young African-American men, homicide. It's a serious, serious behavioral problem. It's not due to racism in any coherent way. I mean, perhaps one can tell a long historical story about the development of the social ecology of American cities in which racism plays a role, but it's mainly due to violent behavior adopted by a relatively few, but still a significant number of African-Americans. Um, and and anti-racism, as in the Black Lives Matter movement, which I'm not against, I'm not against calling police to account, doesn't even begin to address itself to the underlying problem of violence. If I believe that Black Lives Matter, of course I believe that the lives lost by any means are significant. Sure, police should be held to account, but there are only a few hundred, I say only, that's a shocking word, African-Americans, 300 or so in a year, killed by police officers, most of them in violent encounters with police where the officer is held to have behaved appropriately under the circumstance. There are 8,000 African-Americans who lose their lives to violence within these communities around the country in a given year. 300 versus 8,000. What's the relative magnitude of the of the problem. Uh, so it's easy to join the, the bandwagon as it rolls along 
to get behind the parade of anti-racist advocates. This is a very low cost way of saying that you care. It is much, much harder to get inside the families and the communities in which these young men are being shaped, which leads to their violent behavior that costs us so many Black lives. And I worry that the proportionate amount of public attention devoted to the former, the anti-racism crusade, and the relative lack of attention devoted to the latter, the social foundation of violent behavior that in threatens and uh, extirpates Black life, the relative disproportion of attention to those things uh, is a problem. And I believe it's a problem because people take the easiest path. Who's not against racism? It's interesting how, what's the history behind that? I sometimes have the feeling, but I don't know as much about it as you do by far, that a lot of your anti-racist uh, struggles and ideas were shaped in the 60s by the civil rights movement and that that the uh, that Martin Luther King is still the hero of movement. You see these Netflix films are, are very often about this period and that it's the struggle of the 60s that kind of shaped the imaginaries uh, of uh, the anti-racist movement today. But I honestly don't know. Another thesis would be that a, a, a lot of the struggles are inspired by the humanities at the, the universities that you have philosophy and you have theories that that come from 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 the aesthetic department i I'm, i started literature myself and i started literature and philosophy so i'm not playing in there but but that you you have some ideas about racism that are not closely connected to the sciences of sociology and, and economy how, how do you explain this development well i think you point at two very different things one of them the intellectual trend in the humanities and uh the uh, social sciences of postmodern under the influence of European thinkers like Derrida and Foucault and others, uh, which has, inf uh, I, I almost said, has infected, <laughs> when I meant to say has affected <laughs> um, much of the way that we talk about these issues. They call it critical race theory nowadays, and, and it does influence the academy and uh, the elite um, journalist and uh, social critical discourses uh, very much. Uh, but I think there's something else going on. And, and I believe the contrast between the movement of the 60s and the movement of today, uh, inspired by Black Lives Matter and others, is worth drawing out more uh, explicitly. Uh, King and company were appealing to the honor of America. They say, You call yourself a democracy. You say you're the land of the free. You say and all men are created equal in your founding documents. And yet here we are 100 years after emancipation and still these claims are not being met in practice and in actual life. I hold in my hand a magnificent promissory note, says Martin Luther King Jr. A promissory note. America said it was this. I expect you to live up to it. King believed in America. The current movement, I believe it can fairly be said, is in a way cynical in the sense that it doesn't really believe in the ultimate goodness of America. And I, don't, don't, please don't think that I'm naive here. I know that America is not essentially good. I'm not giving that speech. <laughs> but, 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 but I am saying that... Um, The underlying structure of institutions here admits of dramatic reforms, such as was actually realized 
by the movement of King. Um, using the American flag to wipe one's derriere with, so to speak, is a showing of contempt for the idea of America. I, and I believe that too much of that influences the tone of contemporary discourse. So for example, taking a knee, the basketball player, the football player, kneeling. Okay, so why is he kneeling? Because Colin Kaepernick famously decided to express his dislike of policing in America by refusing to stand while the national anthem was played. As if the problem, which is a real problem of police misbehavior, were defining of the American political order. And it is not. We are a country which elected Barack Hussein Obama twice and patted ourselves on the back for having done so. That's a country, I want to say, that can be trusted to give a fair hearing to arguments for justice and to respond accordingly. It's not a country that you need to burn down as so many of the rioters during the summer of 2020 seemed inclined to do. So I, I contrast between King of a half century ago or more um, and, and the current movement insofar as the former trusted America enough to believe that it would live up to its ideals, whereas the latter seems to me to have deep and profound doubts about whether or not the American project is worthy of its, of its allegiance and its commitment. I think it's very interesting what you say, because I think this uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's strategy of injecting shame into the arms and reminding people of their promises and appealing to, to the highest principles of the community, I think that inspired the climate movement a lot here, here, in, here in Europe. That this Greta Thunberg movement saying, like he said, well, there's this constitution, there's a promise here, and it's not fulfilled. Uh, and the young climate activists here are saying the same thing. Well, you gave us the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. You've made this target. Let's, let's fulfill them. Uh, shame on you for not fulfilling it, but ultimately appealing to the best in the society, to the pride of, of overcoming things that we're ashamed of. So, so there is this inspiration here. I see. I see. I understand. Uh, but you are also uh, very early, you made an analysis of, of affirmative action. And, and uh, you know, this affirmative action is coming to Europe as, as, as well as we as our societies are becoming multicultural. And we're trying to deal with the inequalities that are shaped by societies that are formally liberal, but, but you see people don't take advantage the same, the same way. So, so affirmative action is becoming something that is being discussed here. And, and very early, I think it was in 1982, you wrote an analysis uh, of that. And I think you're, you're still sticking to the conclusions of that analysis, aren't you? I, I am. I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but I mean, my views about affirmative <laughs> action are, are complicated. But uh, the, the idea that there needs to be some special effort to address the historical exclusion of Blacks from uh, many uh, areas of American life Uh, yes, I, I would stand by that. I do have some concerns, and I'm, I'd be happy to tell you about them if you like. Please. Well, so affirmative action in the America begins in the 1970s. Uh, it is coming after or at the tail end of the civil rights movement. The country is aware of the mistreatment and unfairness toward Blacks and wants to 
uh, a, uh, it's hard to go to in 1970 an elite American college campus and find blacks amongst the student body or amongst the faculty. There were very, very few. And so a project is undertaken. Let us become more diverse and more inclusive. That project involves affirmative action, which can have many meanings. It can mean simply, let's make sure that we consider some African-American before we make a final decision. Or it can mean as much as if we find an African-American who is sufficiently qualified to be able to function here, even if they are not the most qualified, we should hire them in the interest of advancing those goals. That's all fine in 1970, 1980, 1990. Here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that in the 21st century, as we move forward, the country is changing very quickly. We've got tens of millions of immigrants coming into the United States population over the last half century from uh, East Asia, from South Asia, from Latin America, as well as other points of origin. Uh, the uh, competition for uh, success in the society uh, is becoming keen and relying on uh, using lower standards of expected performance in order to include African-Americans as it seems to be institutionalized into an ordinary and ongoing practice strikes me as problematic for reasons not dissimilar to what I was saying earlier about it being very easy to advance anti-racism because the real problem here at a place like Harvard University, a very elite college where Asian students would be half of the students if you only admit it based upon their test scores and their academic performance are a quarter of the students as it is at a place like Harvard um, and are 5% of the American population or so. Um, relying on special treatment of African-American applicants to ensure that they are equally or adequately represented goes around the question of asking, why is it that so few have presented test scores that are competitive when other groups in the society are, are doing precisely that? It begs the question of development. Uh, and I'm, I'm worrying that it's not really equality. We want racial equality in our elite institutions. We want racial equality in Silicon Valley. We want racial equality in Wall Street. We want racial equality in the science lab and so on. But we are not grappling with the fact that for reasons that we could spend a lot of time talking about, African-Americans are not performing, especially at the most exclusive, high-end technical challenges, are not performing at the same rate. Now, if I use affirmative action as the way to, to take care of that problem by setting a separate standard, I invite all kinds of corruption. I, I invite people to not notice that African-Americans on average are not performing so well. I, I invite people to engage in a, what I'm calling titular equality or optics equality, where you count the number of black faces, but not real equality such that when they're handing out the specialized prizes for the greatest achievement, we see Blacks represented in adequate numbers. So affirmative action should not be a crutch. Uh, it should not be the end of the game. It should be a tool. It should be an intermediary or transitory practice where the ultimate goal is to raise the game of African-Americans so that we don't need affirmative action. Now, in 1970 or 1980, it would have been unrealistic in the extreme to think that we could wipe out all of history 
in a day. But here we are a half century now down the line, and I'm saying it's time to think carefully about whether we want to be as dependent on affirmative action 25 years from now as we are today. My answer to that is no. I had the opportunity to talk to Cornell West uh, half a year ago here on this year. I was very grateful that he would take his time as well. And for him, uh, inequality between whites and blacks in America was closely linked to neoliberalism. And he was referring to neoliberalism uh, all the time, of course, claiming himself a socialist. And I'm so happy to get the chance to talk to you because you you call yourself a, a neoliberalist. And as as I understand it, you've, you've actually been quite consistent with that view uh, throughout your career. So, so how do you see the legacy of neoliberalism uh, today? Well, of course, it depends on what one means by neoliberalism, but let, let's not uh, quibble about words. I'm an economist, okay? I mean, I am a professional economist. I was trained at MIT in the 1970s by uh, men and women, mostly men, who were certainly uh, center left. They, they tended to be progressive in their political instincts. They believed in the welfare state. They thought the pursuit of equality was a good thing. But they also believed in the efficiency of markets as an instrument for organizing economic activity. They believed in using prices uh, as a way of affecting the allocation of resources uh, most expeditiously. Um, they believe that private property at the end of the day was a cornerstone of modern civilization, not, not an evil to be stamped out. They believe that profit, not excess profit, not robber baron profit, but honestly earned return on your investment in capital through effective economic activity was the uh, engine of growth, uh, was the right uh, 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 incentive mechanism to elicit from people the effort that's required to sustain our prosperity. Uh, I don't think I misstate their beliefs. Uh, people like Paul Samuelson or Robert Solo or Peter Diamond or Franco Modigliani, these are all Nobel laureate economists from the era when I was a student, were all men of the left to a certain degree, but they believed in markets. Now, I'm not a socialist. Uh, I think that the uh, nationalization of economic activity to be directed from the center by bureaucrats is, as Friedrich von Hayek <laughs> said, the road to serfdom. I think decentralized decision-making, you were talking about climate and, uh, climate and, and uh, Greta, uh, we, we want there to be serious treatment of the climate problem. We realize that the planet is in danger and that the uh, uh, putting carbon into the atmosphere threatens everybody and it threatens the future of the planet itself. And we want that to stop. Now, how to get that done? For my money as a, quote, neoliberal, I say make people see the full price of what they do when they use carbon. That price includes the consequences for future generations and for the planet of their use of carbon. That price is not reflected in the marketplace without government intervention. So I'm not saying don't intervene, but I'm saying the way you intervene is instead of trying to prescribe for every industry and every human activity, what a committee of the, of the, uh, of the legislature thinks should be done, 
you get the signal correct to the public about the value of things by changing the prices. That means a carbon tax. That means a tax on goods by the government calibrated to reflect the full cost of the activity uh, taking on board its carbon imprint. And then you can collect those revenues and redistribute them back to the people. It doesn't have to be a net revenue uh, raiser for the government. This is the kind of thing an economist would say. That's what I mean by saying I'm a neoliberal. When I say I'm a neoliberal, I mean, don't shut down global trade because it displaces people. I know it displaces people. That's bad. But global trade is the way that we're going to all become wealthier in the long run. When a person is displaced by global trade, take care of them, help them, but don't shut down the transformations. Don't, don't make us all drive horses, <laughs> horse-drawn buggies, because we're worried that the advent of the automobile will displace an industry. Yes, it will displace an industry, but, and, and we should take care of those people if we're worried about them, but uh, the future belongs to the dynamism of a globally integrated uh, commercial enterprise, not without regulation, but also allowing it to breathe, allowing it to actually deliver for us as it has done for hundreds of millions in East Asia and South Asia, uh, the, the benefits of the modern life that we, that we all take for granted. Well, I think it's very inspiring to hear you talk about the best in America and what markets can do and the principles and and hear about and have some optimism for 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 America and the ca capabilities of your society because I think what we get a lot here in Europe at the moment is a kind of conservative pessimism from America and a kind of left wing pessimism uh, as as well. So so I want to ask you one one last question before our time time is up. Are you optimistic about America's confrontation with China over the next uh, over the next couple of decades? Because we have a sense here that if if America doesn't function, if you're not up to the best of your game, that, that we might be losing to China over the next couple of decades. If they produce more wealth and more attractive societies financially, then we're not so certain that democracy will be so attractive. So we feel that a lot, is, a lot of our destinies is riding on, on, on your success over the next couple of years. I know it's a big question, but are, are you confident that America will overcome that? No, no, I'm not. I was interviewed by some South Asian uh, podcasters recently, and they asked me a similar question. And I said, if I were sitting in Singapore or in Thailand or in Vietnam, uh, I don't know that I would bet against the Chinese. Um, I think we, you know, didn't we show it in our uh, mishandling? Of course, we're going to blame President Trump, and he deserves a lot of the blame <laughs> of, of, of the COVID crisis. Uh, aren't we showing it in the uh, polarization of our politics that keeps us from being able to function? Uh, there was talk about infrastructure. We were supposed to be dealing with roads and bridges and tunnels and whatnot. This going all the way back to the Obama administration. Trump ran on that. Nothing happened. Nothing. The Congress of the United States has been spending its time substantially in, in the last couple of years fighting with the president of the United States. And we're not getting off of square one. Uh, I teach a technical subject, economics. At the PhD level, almost all of our students are foreign-born because we have a very high technical threshold for our uh, candidate uh, graduate students in terms of mathematical sophistication that they have to meet. And 
unfortunately, by the time we get down the pecking order from Harvard and Princeton and Stanford and so on, we get down to Brown, number 20, number 22, <laughs> all the qualified Americans have been snapped up by other departments and, and, and people who meet our standards, which are not so dissimilar than other departments, turn, turn out to be a very, most often uh, not uh, native born Americans. Uh, there's a kind of sclerosis, it seems to me here, a, a kind of hardening of arteries or something. I'm not an intellectual historian, so I won't be able to do justice to this. But I worry, and I'm, in, I'm, I'm struck by what you say. What you say is people look to America to, as it were, show the example of what a, a Western-oriented, democratic, uh, open society uh, can achieve. And I'm sure many who are observing world affairs now are asking themselves the question, which is the most effective model for the 21st century? And as I say, based on the evidence at hand, I could not definitively say it is the model of the West. I wasn't expecting you to guarantee us that America will be winning or that our societies will be winning. I just grew up in the 70s believing that we would always be winning in the West because our societies were more attractive and that we were treating the workers better than they did in the communist countries that no matter how critical socialists or whoever was critical of our societies, we delivered on those promises in the long run. And there was a connection between democracy and capitalism that would make democracy and capitalism prevail. So what's going on over the last decade is kind of shocking to us here. So, so I think we're a lot more geopolitically insecure and we're looking to America for answers. But our time is up and we'll still be looking for to your podcast and your TV show at bloggingheads.com. And you've given us so much inspiration and there's so much joy in your conversation, so much curiosity and, and at times anger and enthusiasm as well. Thank you very, very much, Glenn Larry, for taking your time with us tonight. You're welcome, Ruin. Very good to be with you. Det var så vores nye ven, Glenn Larry. Vi glæder os meget til hans selvbiografi om de 50 års kamp for de sorte og for en fri økonomi i USA, der kommer senere på året. Jeg vil skynde mig igen og anbefale, at man lytter til hans podcast The Glenn Show, eller at man ser ham på Blogging Heads TV, hvor han hver 14. dag taler med sin gode ven og kollega John McWhorter. I næste uge, der skal vi tale om noget helt andet, og så alligevel lidt det samme. Vi er nemlig så heldige, at Harvard-professor Louis Menon, han har sagt ja til at tale med os om sin bog på næsten 1000 sider, som handler om The Free World, som handler om, hvordan kultur, kunst, litteratur, musik var med til at skabe det amerikanske århundrede, og var med til at lave fundamentet for de idéer og den politik, der kom til at erobre hele verden, og som måske krakelerer i dag. Jeg taler med ham om hele historien, hvordan den blev til, hvorfor den blev så stærk, og hvordan det hele måske kan gå under. Tak for nu.